Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, May the 5th, 2022. May the 5th be with you. Nope, it's over. It's only one day a year. You had the 4th yesterday. I even acknowledged it. So, May the 5th be with you anyway, because it will be with you for a little while longer, and then the 6th will be with you in the 7th, and so on. It is a Thursday. It is time for an Expert Council Q&A show, episode 3087 of the Survival Podcast. Here's what I have on deck for you today. Dr. Ron Paul and his team uh, will have Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul tag-teaming on why the true pro-American position is staying the hell out of the Russia-Ukraine war. And Chris Rossini will talk about how While the empires collapse, it's the most important time ever to think and act local. Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with erosion in a floodplain in the case that it's already occurred. There was a pond, there was a flood, there was massive erosion. Now we want to fix it. We also don't want to just put it back. We want to put it back better so it doesn't happen again. Uh, Amy Dingman will talk about why you don't need to worry about my child's future options when you're a homeschool parent. I have these people all the time. Well, what if I want my son to go to Harvard? Well, first, your, your kid's probably not going to Harvard. And second, if your kid's going to Harvard, they're going to end up going to Harvard. Homeschool, states, it doesn't matter, you see. Anyway, Amy has some words on that as well. Nicole Sauce has an update on her doggos. Yeah, she had a doggo that got in a fight with another doggo, and that doggo got tore up pretty bad, and then there was apprehension, and she said, I'm in over my head here, and instead of having like to rehome one of them, to be responsible as a dog parent, a dog owner, brought in a professional trainer. She's going to give you an update of how that's gone. Nick Ferguson will talk about using arborist wood chips as mulch. Uh, and we might, I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. We might have Nick Ferguson right here with me tomorrow for an episode. Nick will be here at my home about three hours from right now. Now, not when you're listening to this, but as I'm recording it, I'm about three hours from Peak Ferguson uh, happening here at my home. My Don Charlie's very excited about it. He's, Nick's one of his favorite people, and I don't know what his morning has in store, uh, but maybe instead of me doing an Outback with Jack, we'll do Outback with Nick and Jack. That'd be kind of fun. Jessica Dixie Mills, yes, Jessica Dixie Mills has an answer for us on filtering water on the trail and the skinny on something called the Sawyer Squeeze. And Jessica, I think, is going to be around more. She's been on the trail a lot lately, and so we don't, we haven't had a lot of questions for for for, for Jessica because we haven't had a lot of responses from Jessica. She got me this one back in like 24 hours. So if you want to ask some questions about backpacking, living out in the woods adventuring, just being a really cool, awesome person and having a presence on social media and inspiring others or anything like that. Jessica is back on the attack, and I could certainly use some questions for her. Somehow I got out of sequence there. I hope I won't forget when I drop the uh, the stuff in as we go along and have somebody missing, which I have done before. But Darby Simpson also has an answer for us today on long-term storage of pig and other livestock feeds. I'll chip in a little on that one. Then I have a quote of the day that I'm going to give you an analysis for. And I swear to God, guys, I really don't do this intentionally. I really don't. I almost always pick when I'm going to do a quote of the day on a Thursday for an anchor segment. I pick my quote, then I build the show. 
So my quote of the day is by Sun Tzu, and I want you to think about the fact that we're leading off with Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul talking about why a true American, a pro-American position is staying out of the Russia-Ukraine war. Yeah, here's, here's my quote of the day. It's by Sun Tzu. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from a prolonged warfare. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. So I'll take a little bit of a different approach on this um, as far as our involvement, but we'll come down, I think, on the same place. Now, I haven't heard Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams speak on this yet and their take on it, so I can't guarantee that, but I'm pretty sure it's what's going to happen. With that in mind, here we go. Uh, the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams on the, the, the uh, pro-American position is staying out of wars. And then Chris Rossini on wall. Empires are collapsing. It's really the time to think and act locally. U.S. begins to train Ukrainian troops in Germany. Again, regardless of how you feel about what's happening there, this is a step closer to direct confrontation with Russia, which will not end well. But we're sending tons of weapons over there. Everyone's sending tons of weapons over there. The U.S. is training 100 more Ukrainians on howitzer artillery systems in Europe in a five-day course, according to the Pentagon. Washington said it will send 90 howitzers total to the embattled country as part of two security assistance packages worth $800 million each, announced earlier this month. What could go wrong? Yeah, not a, not a chance. It's going to work out quite well. And I would like to say, who will it be to step forward and voluntarily educate the people to the real history of uh, of Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, the more I look at the history, the more uh, amazing it is. You know, especially since the West never wanted to never wanted to give individual sovereignty, you know, to Ukraine. And yeah. I think that's that's pretty fascinating that 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 was actually our position for a period of time. Yeah. And of course, everyone there's some rumors that Poland has its eyes on part of Ukraine that it lost after World War II. So it's dangerous where, you know, we should be clear, we're teaching Ukrainians how to kill Russians, and we're sending them the weapons to do that. If the shoe were on the other foot, if the Chinese or Russians were training people in Mexico how to kill Texans or Americans, uh, there would be an outcry, and rightly so. So we need to stop, take a deep breath. Instead of listening to John Kirby being breathless every day, giving the briefing, we should stop and think about it. Is this really the direction we want to go? And how far will Russia's patience go before something even worse happens? You know, everyone wants to say, oh, you're taking Russia's side, or you're taking NATO's side, or whatever. No one ever wants to say, hey, we're taking the U.S. side. I mean, we're with David Stockman. This is not our fight in any remote way. And here's a bit of encouraging news. J.D. Vance, Republican, was running in the primaries in Ohio. All of his opponents were in favor of no-fly zone over Ukraine. He is the one who got up there and said, I don't care what happens in Ukraine. It doesn't matter to me. I care about jobs in the U.S. I care about the U.S. economy. I care about manufacturing in the U.S. Now, he's not perfect, but this was his thing. He, he stepped on the, on the third rail with both feet. I don't care. I don't want any part of this Ukraine war. He won yesterday, convincingly, in his primary against a lot of very well-funded opponents. So... I think Republican Party, take note, there is a strong sentiment out there that does not want any part of this war. Let Biden have that, it. That is great news, and I, I don't know Vance. I've never talked to him, no of him. But if I did talk with him, what I would say is, you, you know, I, I had a, somewhat of an experience dealing with war issues in young people. I say, 
go to the college campuses. We need an injection of anti-war fervor in this country because the progressives have deserted us. So therefore, do you go to the Republicans? It looks like the Republicans didn't jump on your bandwagon, but the people are with him. That is, that is great. But he, he spoke the truth. And I think just coming across as speaking the truth gave him a lot of points as much as the issue. But when people have second thoughts and say, you know, that's probably true. What do I want to send my kids over there for? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, common sense breaks out. And that's, that's dangerous. And telling the truth, boy, that is really dangerous to the thugs who run our governments. When central planners fall apart, and it has happened so many times, it's, it's ugly and nobody wants to go through it. But the falling apart process is actually the cure. That's how you get back to normality and reality. And I don't want to go through it. I'm sure Dr. Paul doesn't either, but these choices are out of our hands. We know that the costs of uh, building and maintaining an empire is it, al it always becomes unsustainable. Unfortunately, we live in an empire. That decision was made well before any of us were born. Now we're dealing with the consequences. Uh, with each passing day, the costs of maintaining an empire from all angles constantly increases. The problems constantly increase. We see students, they want uh, forgiveness of trillions of dollars of loans. Well, who's, who's going to cover that? The banks or, or us? You know, and then you have the, all the bank bailouts and the Wall Street bailouts and corporate bailouts. So when the economy appears okay, you know, people overlook this stuff. They deal with their daily lives, you know, but it just appears okay. But once everything starts coming down, now the government ha and the Fed and everybody else, they have to face an onslaught of all these people that have become dependent on them and have believed all their lies. And it just cannot be maintained. The Soviets showed it, uh, showed what happens. You know, when there's problems, everything becomes local really fast. People start focusing on their local situations and don't care about the big empire anymore. So freedom is far superior to this big centralized power control. You know, there is no perfection in this world. There is no perfection with freedom. But at least the fires are localized and they're decentralized. When you have this one big monolith, everybody has to go down with the ship. And, you know, that's why we're always advocating for liberty because it would be much, much, much better than this. I'll, I'll save, save my thoughts on staying out of warfare um, for my anchor segment because there's so much synchronicity. But, on you know, on the acting local, being the time to act local, it also has some synchronicity with where my head is because I just spent four days with awesome people at Float Fest, and it was all about that. It was all about working with the community that you live with, not just branching out and meeting people from all across the country, which is part of it, but actually building community right in your own backyard. And there's a, a tremendous, tremendous power in that. And there's never been a time where this is more important. Never been a time that this is more important. Just think about that as we go on to our next one. Now we're going to hear from probably the best permaculture, I would say the best living permaculturist on planet Earth, in my opinion. Uh, I guess it would be a toss-up between him, him and his mentor, Bill Mollison. But uh, Bill, uh, unfortunately for us, passed away a few years ago. And uh, so I'd say this is the best living permaculturist on planet Earth answering your questions. Jeff Lawton discussing what to do about erosion within a floodplain, not only to put things back so they will be great, but how to prevent this damage from happening again. 
Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, 400 metres below sea level, the lowest place on earth. We have a question here coming in about a floodplain um, damage of a dam that's been breached because of a huge flood and um, what to do to um, repair the situation and also mitigate the floods when they happen um, on a bit of a budget. Um, so we can have a more stable uh, floodplain and plant fruit trees just above the flood. Well, the thing to look into is willows. There's a whole history of using willows for erosion control, uh, laying willows and, and driving post willows into position. If you Google willows for erosion control, you'll find all kinds of YouTube videos, information, photographs. The willow grows very easily from cuttings and doesn't have a tap root. It just has hair roots. So it has a long net root and they will actually pleach together. So one pleaching is when one plant or tree um, grafts to another tree of the same species. Not many trees do this. Mulberries will do it actually. But willows do it very well. So you can get a network of willows pleached together and create literally a biostructure that very much slows down the erosion, if not completely stops it. But also their whippy branches and leaves in the flood slow down the flow and trap the silt and build sediment. So that absolutely first rate at this and there are many cases of it working all across America um, it's a, it is actually an old hist, um, European historical European technique um, so the willow is the genus Salix and it only appears in the northern hemisphere not the southern hemisphere um, naturally so it's endemic to the northern hemisphere and there's over a hundred in the genus so it's just a matter of sorting out the most appropriate willow and then off you go uh, netting your your um, system your erosion uh, floodplain together and building silt and fertility and um, you're on a very positive track from there on um, it is best if it's nice and harmonic in the way it's planted so that you get a um, a kind of slow curving hook um, towards the upstream so it becomes a better trap of nutrient um, we're also asking if you know anybody that designs um, property um, we design I design online through um, uh, permaculture sustainable consultants you can see our uh, system online and uh, how you fill out a form and, and, and get an assessment if we can work together and all our charges uh, we do it remotely today with incredible detail because we have access to LIDAR maps and um, we have a, a mapping team that can enhance LIDAR for the purpose of permaculture design so we can do everything online probably more accurately than we can do face to face on the ground um, because of this wonderful technology Okay, there you go. So a few things on that one that I wanted to let you know about. First of all, 
I did not know that Jeff had an online fill out a form, you know, upload your stuff, get a full on consultancy on a property with design and implementation instructions. So if you want to make yourself uh, aware of more of what that's all about, I found the website. There's a link into today's show notes under resources for today's show. And again, we're in episode 3087. I'll also say if you want to hire someone to come out and consult with you, we're going to hear from in just a couple more segments, uh, Nick Ferguson, who is local to my area. I mentioned will be here at my home uh, later today. And if you want somebody on site, and especially if you're in the south, central, southeast, you know, up in the like uh, Louisiana, uh, I'm sorry, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, especially uh, over in like Alabama around there, uh, Nick is available for consultations and you can learn more. Uh, about Nick Ferguson uh, on the Expert Council page, and we'll hear from him as well. And I'll add a link to uh, his website as well to the show notes. Next, if, if you have any doubts about Jeff Lawton and his supreme mastery of designing for water flows, I have two videos for you to watch. Uh, they're both in the show notes today. The, the first one I would recommend watching um, which, even if you're not worried about flood, I, I really recommend watching this. New Water Features at Zatuna Farm. He put this out a few months ago. And I watched that video, and I made a comment on it, and it was something to the effect of, I think that there is probably 1% of people that will watch this video that even truly understand it. And then I realized that could sound arrogant, and I didn't mean it to sound arrogant, so I went back to explain what I meant by understand it. I meant understanding it in relationship to stacking in time. I think most people could look at it, and if you have a basic understanding of earthworks and how water flows and, and basic hydrology across, hydrology across the landscape, anybody with a good versing in earthworks and permaculture would understand why he or how he did what he did. Okay, The why plays into the time stack. And to understand... The time stack represented in the design that's in that first video, it's about 30-something-odd minutes long, is unbelievable. Because I'm telling you, when I looked at it, I realized, like, if everybody at Satina Farm evaporated into the ether of outer space and disappeared, and you came to this place 500 years from now, the ecology of it would still be better and still be improving from what he did, and it would never go away. It would, never be, it would have to be some sort of a, a cataclysm. Not a local cataclysm either, like you know, some sort of like asteroid impact level event, like something like that, to alter that design even over half a millennia. That in half a millennia it would still be improving the landscape. And then there's another video. It's called Zatuna Farm versus the Flood of 2022. So that video happened after the first one I just mentioned. They had torrential flooding. And it's very interesting to watch this 11-minute video after the one I already mentioned. So watch that one first. And watch Jeff walk you through the same areas and show you what the floods did to the surrounding landscape and what they didn't do to Zatuna Farm. To, to look at all the water that they're holding, all the, the measures they took to actually put more dams, more ponds, more swales. And then you think with more water in that landscape, man, no. Completely the opposite. I've said this many times. When you properly slow, spread, and soak water, you turn violent water into passive, quiet water. Jeff is truly a master at doing that. And I encourage you, again, no matter where your head is in this game, 
to watch those two videos and definitely watch the the new water features video first, even though I think I least listed it second in the show notes. Uh, with that, let's go on to our next one. Let's talk about people that are worried about my child's future because they're homeschooling and will they have the options open to them uh, that they would have if they went to the, the government school, the state school. Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Amy Dingman with more on that. Hello, TSPers. This is Amy Dingman from the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and website, and I'm back to answer another question about homeschooling. I get a lot of questions that revolve around, I want to make sure my kid is prepared for the future. How do I know what to teach my kids in order to be prepared for the big bad future? Now, our kids were homeschooled and unschooled all the way through to adulthood, so I, I feel sort of qualified to talk about this fear and this question and how we tackled it and how it all turned out. And I think this is something that applies to anyone who has kids, no matter if you're homeschooling them or not, because we all worry about the future. But I often find this is a common question from homeschoolers because often they're worried about, the homeschool parents are worried about whether or not they're teaching their kids the right subjects and giving them the right classes and giving them enough information to make it in the big bad world if they aren't taking all the right classes with their public school peers. So the first thing that I want to ask people who are worried about this, about being prepared for the future, is what does that actually mean? Being prepared for the future, what does that actually mean? If someone uses a gas stove their whole life, and then they, they move out on their own and they have an electric stove and they don't realize that the burner stays hot after you turn it off and so they burn their first meal on the electric stove, does that mean they weren't prepared for the future? I think we need to be honest about what it means to prepare kids for their future because what I see is a bunch of stressed out parents who are kind of grasping at straws, trying to give their kids a bunch of skills and knowledge to take on this future that if we are honest, None of us can see the future, right? We have no idea what's going to happen. We have this fear that we need to get our kids to age 18 and you need to be prepared for all the things. You need to know how to do all the things. And, hey, you need to know what you want to do with your life. But but think back, you guys. Let's be honest. Were you prepared for the future that you walked into? When you were 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, were you preparing for life at 23, 45, 67, did you feel prepared for life at 18 or 21? None of us know our future. And I want you to think about that when you're worrying about how to prepare your kid for theirs. My plan at age 17-ish, I was going to go into musical theater. I was going to be an actress. And that's, that's what I was doing. I was in music. I was in theater. That was my whole life. That was going to be my life's plan. Then I grew up. I got married. I had some kids. I became a homeschool mom. I became an author. I become a podcaster. I live on a farm where I bake bread and I can things and I butcher chickens and pigs. And here's the thing. I didn't know how to do any of that when I was younger. Does not already knowing how to do that mean that I wasn't prepared for my future? Or does it mean that I just moved forward with this realization that every single day of my future might bring something new that I would have to be brave and branch out and learn about. The future is always changing. Always. The internet did not even exist when I was younger. Now I make my living on it. We don't know what the future is going to bring. 
Now, as homeschooling families, we generally understand that learning never stops, right? And and I kind of think that our kids get that because they live in this world where they can get the answer for any question, they can get a tutorial for any skill with the swipe of their finger if they're online. Learning is really second nature to them, both as homeschoolers and kids who were born into a world of increasing technology. Like I said, internet did not exist most of the time that I was in school. People didn't have computers at their house, or at least where I lived, you didn't have a computer at your house. And if you did, you sure didn't have the internet because that was expensive and only the really fancy folks had that. Do you remember living in that time? If you're old enough, you remember living in that time. So I think sometimes it's the adults who have this skewed vision of what's ahead. We're worried about the future. We're worried about our kids' future. We don't know the future. We didn't know our future. We could not have planned for the crazy things that we are living in now, the opportunities we have, the technology that exists, the careers that did not exist when I was younger. So how do you prepare for a future that's always changing? Here's my best advice to you. Teach your kids how to learn. Teach your kids how to find information. That should be the focus. And I mean, in, pre in preparing for the future, teach your kids life skills. That's obviously going to help in their adult life if they can cook and do laundry and change a flat tire and all of those things, right? Encourage your kids to take care of the things they need to take care of because that's just part of being a responsible human being. But I think it's really important to simply teach kids how to learn. Because that is what we all continue to do as life progresses through these twists and these turns and highs and lows and this crazy future that we keep walking into. Here's something that's a little bit mind-blowing. We continue to prepare for the future because the future is whatever is ahead of us. Whether we are 18 or 58 or 88, the future is always ahead of where we are now. And we try to make this really big deal about our kids turning 18. There's something magical about them turning 18 and they're supposed to like know how to do everything and understand everything and know everything. Where did that come from, you guys? The future is always ahead of us and we are always learning. The future is not this solid block that you hit when you graduate and you leave home and you begin adulting. The future is everything that happens after today and the next day and the next day. The future is like this, this slide that you continue to go through, right? It's not a wall that you hit. So I think the best way to prepare for the future is to continue to live and explore and experience and learn and know that little bits and pieces of it all are helping with what's ahead. But also know that no matter how much we explore and experience and learn, we're not going to get it all. There's always going to be stuff we, we have to learn right when we need it. Maybe being prepared for the future means knowing how to deal with the things that you don't already know. Maybe that is a more useful approach than freaking out that you, you need to teach your kids every single skill and every single thing by the time they are 18. Because being on this side of things, there are far more things that I have encountered in adulthood that I didn't understand or know how to do than things that I did understand or know how to do. And no amount of preparation from my parents or my teachers would have changed that one little bit. If you have other questions you'd like me to answer, you can send them to Jack or you can email me at amy at afarmishkindoflife.com. You can visit my website at afarmishkindoflife.com. Thanks, Jack, for letting me talk to all your fabulous listeners. And I'll talk to you again soon. You know, I'll put it to you this way. I know quite a bit of stuff. 
I know how to do a lot of things. I think most of you do as well. And the longer you've been around, the more you know how to do. And there's a reason for that. All of us are learning new things and how to do things differently every day of our lives if we are still growing as humans, as adults, as people, as individuals, as men, as women. Okay? You stop learning new things and how to do new things in new ways, you stop growing. There was a rabbi, I can't remember his name, but he talked about how if, if, if lobsters were like people, lobsters would all be tiny. Because a lobster grows to a point, it becomes very, very uncomfortable. And it sheds its shell. And then it has to, and it hurts. And it has to hide so the other lobsters don't eat it while its new shell hardens. And without that, it couldn't grow. And the way people are today, when we have any discomfort, we run to a doctor and get a pill. So the lobster would go get a pill. It would stop its growth. It would stop being uncomfortable. It wouldn't get eaten by another lobster, but it wouldn't grow. And all the lobsters would be the size of shrimps. I think there's a lesson in that. And so if me, being an almost 50-year-old man now, I'll be 50 in a few months, learned something new today, and I have already multiple, multiple times learned something new today. And I plan on learning until I can no longer fog a mirror. When they, you know, maybe in my last days laying in the bed and waiting to pass, if that happens that way, then maybe at that point, I don't know. Maybe I won't be, but I, st- I think I still will. I think at that point, I, I, and I think maybe there's, uh, there's more wisdom in this than people realize. Maybe at that point, I'll be learning what death is. I think maybe we learn until our consciousness is gone. So if that's the case, how in the hell are you going to have a kid learn everything they need to know by the time they're 18? The answer is, it is doable. Because this is what you need to know. To survive in our modern world. To be non-brittle. To not be a teacup teenager, let alone a teacup kid. You need to learn how to learn. It's the most important skill I think there is. I just did a show recently, 15 things that we should teach our children that government schools never will. And learning how to learn was on that list. If I had put it in order of importance, it would have been number one. It would have been number one. Assuming you can read, write, use basic logic, and do basic mathematics. If you can, if you can get those things down and have some form of historical context, so that you can apply the logic that you have. Where have we seen this before? What happened last time? So what's likely to happen again? If you add that, the skill of knowing how to learn a thing for yourself, to be a self-directed learner, you have everything you need. Because need means be able to survive. Wake up tomorrow still breathing, still fogging a mirror. So the most important skill set you can teach your children is how to learn when they need to learn. And here's the beautiful part of it. If you put a good foundation and you don't have to do, you don't even have to teach that. A lot of what happens in our education system, these 13 years that children have the best part of their day, the best part of their life taken from them and shoved into an institution actually deprograms this innate ability that humans have. People throughout history, again, historical context have always learned what they needed when they needed it. And there's never been a time with more access to more knowledge more quickly than right now. And we've, we've kind of hit like a critical mass on that where that will only continue to hockey stick upward. The ability to assimilate, learn, process, and use new information. I, I, I don't know when it'll plateau, but it's not anytime soon. Because it's not just the ability 
but the available, right? So the access is through the roof, but the avail what is available continues to grow. I'm not worried about whether or not my grandson and granddaughter will have what they need when they're 18, because I already know that they will. I already know that building young people into young, you know, young children into young adults, right? I already know that if you do that the right way, that everything they need is already there. And the big problem, and this is where parents get into trouble, you start worrying about things your kids are not going to ever worry about. But what if they want to be a doctor? If your child has the aptitude to be a doctor and they want to be a doctor, they're going to be a doctor. Period. That's how that works. It's an incredibly difficult journey through life. And if that's what they want, they're going to get there. Because in the words of our Uh, prior uh, expert council members who filled this spot, uh, Mike and Sula Preece, you cannot force a child, and I'm going to change that to person, you cannot for- force a person into learning something they do not want to learn. And you can never prevent a person from learning something that they do want to learn. Next up, a uh, little update on... Nicole Sauce's dogs and how professional training's going to rectify a uh, behavioral problem and an adversity problem between the pack members. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with an update about my dogs. I, I did a segment a while back just telling you about a pretty tense situation that happened here involving dog fighting. And the problem was that the dog fighting came from inside the gate, not outside the gate. And I told you that I was going to acknowledge it was bigger than I am, go out externally and get some assistance from a professional trainer. At the time, I did not realize he is the best trainer in the state. He just happens to live 20 minutes from me. So it's, it's as if the universe said, this is your path. Here's what's happened since then. Uh, first of all, I'm lucky enough to have neighbors whose dogs were also involved who are willing to put in the work as well. And we started going to the trainer first with the two dogs who instigated the fight and worked on acclimating them to being around each other in a calm state. We also adjusted how I interact with some of my dogs, with well, with both of my dogs, and making them earn everything. I was also reached out to by Joel Riles from Fortress Canines, and he, he gave me some good advice about dealing with aggression. And we're about, I guess, six weeks or two months, six to eight weeks since the incident. And here's what's up. The dogs are not integrated. They are not just hanging out by themselves. They are always supervised. Um, they are much better behaved. <laughs> after going through regular training. And for background, I trained my dogs on the regular. It's not like they were left to just do whatever. But with that instance of aggression, that one instance of aggression, what we realized is when they get into an excited state, they will take it out on each other if they don't have an outlet. And so the entire focus here has been in eliminating the need or the the excited state so that we can all hang out and be cool. And that means that they don't get to play hard anymore. Because if they play hard, especially with the dog who was injured, they might hit a spot, she might snap, they might snap, and then we have a dog fight. All in all, it's going really well. 
We are in the final phase of integration. I have a spring workshop coming with 70 people, and we've decided to put off the training for that until right after the workshop. And that final phase involves our dogs coming across each other on a leash because then I can have control of the animal and the other neighbor can have control of his animal. My two dogs who live together are fully integrated at this point and trustworthy. I just wanted to say that taking the early intervention with the dog trainer was definitely the right move. If you've had trouble with your dogs and you're wondering what to do, don't put it off. You know, I spent years being able to train my dogs to do such things as not kill chickens, not kill ducks, not kill goats, not go after people. But when this situation came up, I was afraid if I didn't deal with it right away, I would end up with a much bigger problem and maybe a problem where I had to euthanize somebody or one of my dogs killed the other dog, which would have been horrible. With this situation, we have a new regimen of daily training which is great, and it's really made a huge difference in my dogs. And the last step is that daily regimen of training between the neighbor's dog and my dog to where we can integrate again. I don't know that we will let them run in the yard together unsupervised. It's going to take a lot to let me get there, but I'm okay with that because at this point I now know what to do when I am there and I observe and I see them getting kind of spun up with each other. I know how to call them off. And that has been the key. I just wanted to share that update because a lot of you reached out after that last segment and I wanted to let you know things are way better and it's all working and we still have dogs that will do the most important thing. I mean, aside from spending time with their humans, of course, they will also chase off the bad bird. By the way, if you're interested in seeing some animals that have been well-trained by a professional, our friend over at Fortress Canine, who does defense animals or um, protection dogs, that's Joel Riles, he will be speaking at the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, June 11 and 12. You can check out the full agenda at selfreliancefestival.com. And if you think you're going to buy a ticket, Use the link that Jack puts in this show because I think he might get a little bit of a commission if you do that. Anyway, make it a great week. So one of the bigger lessons in this is in any instance where you find yourself in over your head, it does make sense to find a solid professional and get professional help. I don't care if it's landscape design. I don't care if it's consulting within your business. I don't care if it's like I need a new skill to be able to compete in my profession. And so I need to hire someone that's a trainer or a tutor or take a a course, uh, or it's dealing with dogs. The other thing is, and I think this is a big issue for a lot of dog owners, Nicole has like a combination of like working and mauler breeds. Uh, The dog that got hurt, Cece, I love her. She's a great little pup. She bonded with me instantly uh, when I visited Nicole a few years ago. Uh, But she's pit mix. She's got that's a mauler breed. And uh, the dog that got into her the most is a dog called Chestnut, if, I, if I'm correct in where the conflict lied. Chestnut is like a, like a Catahoula or a Cur or something to that effect or some mix thereof. She's a beautiful, much larger working breed dog, a dog that would be at home running through the trees chasing squirrels up a tree or chasing raccoons or something like that. 
And both of those dogs have different needs to have a certain amount of daily outlet of energy to have a purpose. And many dogs need these dogs that come from these breed lines that are bred to do a thing. And a pit bull is actually less bred to do a thing as far as needing an energy outlet. A pit bull was bred to hang out with people and to protect people from other people. That's, and, and from other dogs or any other threat. That's what a pit bull was bred to do. A dog like Chestnut was bred to run through the trees and track things down. And you have to find ways to give a dog that sense of purpose at times or conflicts will ensue because when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing but you feel like you're supposed to be doing something, dogs will literally dump their energy into aggressive behavior. And here's an example of that that had nothing to do with a direct aggressive behavior. We had a dog years and years ago. He was our dog even when I started TSP. I remember when he passed away. We actually, I did a post on a blog called 16 Years of Devotion. The dog's name was Blackie. He was a, he was a lab chow and other mix. And, uh, he was my son's dog. He, as far as I'm concerned, he helped raise my son. My, we got him when my son was seven years old. We had him for 16 years. And if we were to walk him on a leash, my wife and my son, and frankly, no one other than me, could watch him walk him on a leash without being drugged. You were literally drugged by this dog. And I have something that I can't teach when it comes to dealing with dogs because it's innate. And if I could teach it, I would. If I could put it in a bottle, I would sell it. So I could walk the dog. And I think part of it is expectation. I think this is a big place people get in problems with dogs as well. Dogs generally behave the way you expect them to, even when what you expect is negative. So, and I've even had this happen to me. That's why I know it's true because usually I don't have any problems. Like if I have this feeling like this dog is going to be behaving some negative way, generally the dog will behave in exactly that way. Part of that might be me reading the dog, but part of that might actually be helping to fulfill that prophecy. So I expected the dog to heal, so the dog healed. I have a friend that has a dog that strangers can't touch. He won't eat from a stranger's hand. First time I ever met the dog, I said, can he have food from the table? Because I never do that without asking friend said yes, fed the dog, the dog ate immediately out of my hand. And uh, my friend was like, I, I don't even understand, like, whose dog is this? And uh, what Joel, I just spent some time with Joel Riles, who, who Nicole mentioned uh, at Float Fest. He said, because you don't care if he eats. You don't care if he takes it from you. I think there's part of that. But it, it, a big part of it is um, is an energy thing. But this, this black uh, lab mix that we had, Blackie, The way we ended up solving his problem, I got him a dog, like, vest, like a dog coat, dog jacket, call it what you want to, that had cargo pockets in it. Many service dog owners have these. And I put it on the dog, and I took a couple boxes of 7mm mag, just because they were bigger and heavier boxes of ammo that I had online, or had around. And I put two boxes of 7 mag in each, because this is a big dog, on each side of his Uh, vest and put his vest on whenever we'd walk him and my wife and my son could then walk him and he would heal because he had he was bearing weight and a lab is another working breed he was bearing weight he was performing a function he was doing a thing and he chilled like i've done whole episodes on dogs i probably will again but there's a big thing in that in giving a dog enough activity that they feel that their function has been achieved and and that will not just deal with some aggression issues, but many other behavioral issues. And you're never too old to learn a thing, like from Amy's thing. So one of the problems we've had with Charlie 
And he's a great dog. But we've had this problem for a while now, and since we put brand new, really expensive doors on the house, it's a bigger problem. And since we put the back gate on where he can't get to the back door, where he can see in the door, scratching the door. And Lucy barks to come in. Just She figured it out for herself. He scratches the door. So we, my wife figured this out. We put two bar stools in front of the door. So he can't reach the door. So he has to bark. And we let that go for about a week, and then we take the bar stools away. And if he scratches again, we put the bar stools back. Eventually, he'll make the connection. We don't have to spend a lot of time working on it. So also, in addition to getting help when you need help with anything, dogs included, also think about simple solutions to complex problems. Uh, we used to have a saying in the Army, simple solutions to complex problems will not be tolerated. Uh, but if you're not in the military, that does not apply. Let's take another one. This one on mulching with arborist wood chips. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty calling in with another expert counsel, and I'm just going to get right into it. Hey, Jack, I've got a question for Nick Ferguson. Is there anything to be aware of using arborist wood chips as garden mulch? Hi, Nick. I've got a local tree company that I can get free wood chips from a local tree company for use as mulch in the vegetable garden. Awesome. Any extra will be thrown down on pathways and thrown in compost. And would like to know if there's anything I should be aware of. Are certain types of trees better to use than others, such as hardwoods, and or should certain types be avoided? Also, is the potential of some wood chips being from a diseased tree something of concern in the vegetable garden? Thanks, Justin. Great question and a simple one to answer, so this should be a quick one today. I say that and uh, things keep popping up in my head, so maybe I spoke too soon. I'll, uh, I'll give the short answer of what I look for and worry about first and then maybe dive into some details. Um, personally, I had about 20 arborist truckloads dumped last year. They were mostly branches and leaves of pine, maple, willow, oak, all sorts of other species. I had one batch of mostly cedar wood. Uh, the only thing I did differently with the cedar was to put it somewhere with higher traffic where I wanted mulch to stay, stay a long time. That's it. All of the rest got spread 8 to 12 inches deep on my garden space. Um, honestly, I'd like to go about 4 to 10 times as much as uh, I got because uh, I want to expand my garden. So uh, I could see putting another 8 inches on my garden next year. And then I'd like to expand it several times. So, I mean, if any of you guys are listening and you want to bring me free mulch, come on. Uh, <laughs> that would just cover my soil building and mulching needs. On top of that, I could use about another 10 times delivered so I can put it all into Johnson's Sioux bioreactors. So, uh, are there things to worry about? Probably. Do I worry about them? No, not really. Should you? I don't know. Um, I mean, I would actually worry a bit if I got a big load of black locust or honey locust with thorns and seeds all over the place because those are painful, they can poke holes in things you don't want holes being poked in, and they'll grow a whole bunch more things with the seeds. Uh, or maybe, you know, like black walnut because of the juglone or juglone, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I wouldn't want to mulch my maters with mater-killing mulch and black walnut does kill things like that so uh, I'd be careful about something like that I probably wouldn't be too worried about the black walnut as long as I put it through a Johnson's Sioux bioreactor for a year or so um, 
something you might want to be careful of. Uh, you mentioned the disease thing. I don't think that's much of a concern. Sure, you might import some things. Um, honestly, if you're getting mulch dropped off, you're getting it from at most 20 miles away. I can't imagine those those guys traveling more than 20 miles. So any diseases in the area are going to already be in the area. Any insects that are bad are already going to be in the area. So I don't think it's a really big concern. A lot of those things will not transfer from tree species to vegetable gardens, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, what you can see happen is with deep, fresh mulch, and, you know, especially fertility added on top and kind of filtering through it, is that you get composting and a lot of heat. The bacteria and protozoa, all those little critters, bodies slamming around in a great big mosh pit of mulch and fertility um, can make a whole lot of body heat. And this can be beneficial if you're dealing with cold temps. You know, you could have 12 inches of mulch and it's kind of warm and you've got a trench opened up down to the soil and you've got your seedling plants down there and they're kind of, you know, snuggled in and they're going to be warmer over the course of the night. Um, I just, I was out at uh, John's at SOE Tactical uh, at the last uh, um, Living Free in Tennessee uh, event and there was a great big pile of mulch and there was ice everywhere. It was frosted. It was frozen outside first thing in the morning and the top of that mulch pile was completely thawed. There's steam coming all off of it. So, I mean, it can help with cold temps. Um, and it can be detrimental if you're not careful. So pay attention to the temperature and make sure you're not accidentally cooking your plants or seeds. I think I might have actually killed one of my tomatoes um, in my row by uh, having too much of a hot spot. So I hope that answers your question, Jim. Keep the good ones coming. I may not be back next week with another answer. All depends on how things go, if I can get another one uh, recorded before I leave. I'm about to be on another consulting tour, but never fear. I'll be back in short order, and I'll be headed through Tennessee and the southern states a bit over the course of this summer. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Good stuff from Nick, as always. And I would just say that, in general, when you're getting mulch from arborists, uh, and people that work, and, and this is where I get most of my mulch, is not really arborists so much as people that do work for the county and the state and the cities and, and just prune trees so that they don't get into the electric lines and things like that. That's where I get most of mine from. What usually happens is you're getting such a diverse array that things like, well, is there some black walnut in there? Well, maybe, but the you, you've got this giant mix and any individual thing is mitigated. So if you think about it, like look at something that has been gone to war with by the government, comfrey. So comfrey grows in all kinds of pastures and places where uh, animals graze. It, it, now, now to be fair, if I go and I, I feed a pig a diet of forage, and that forage is made up of like 60% comfrey, Lawrence D. Wells himself, who championed comfrey in every way possible, said it'll kill the pig. There is a there is something that you can you can take anything and turn the dose into the poison, but if that pig is going through pasture and it's getting a little bit of comfrey every day, the pig actually gets healthier. It's tonifying. The liver damage that is done by this excessive use of a thing 
right? Just massively excessive use of a thing. It actually, the same thing that causes damage to a thing often is actually the cure. Small amount is the cure, the large amount is the poison. So I think that when we look at something like, well, is there some pecan or some walnut in there? Yeah, maybe, but you, should we use conifer? Well, there's there's pine and spruce and oak and maple and a little bit of a pecan and some persimmon and poplar and you know tulip tree or what to late to tupelo and uh, Kentucky coffee and all these other trees mixed together. You can just relax. You can just relax because you're ending up with such small amounts of any one thing that everything kind of counteracts. And I have never had a problem using wood chips. I know Paul Wheaton spreads, in my opinion, I love Paul, but when it comes to wood chips, Paul Wheaton spends a ridiculous amount of FUD. Paul Wheaton spreads more FUD about wood chips than Peter Schiff spreads about Bitcoin. I, I have never known anybody to use wood chips and have any serious problems in what they're doing. And so my, my response to... Can I get wood chips? Should I? Is yes. And I have a ton of wood chips. I keep using them. I've never had a problem with them. And the the and, and if somebody asked if I wanted more, yes. Yes, please. How much? All of it. All of it. Anyway, with that, I wanted to hit, um, well, actually, it's Darby Simpson's turn. We're going to talk about long-term storage of pig feed. Hey there, everybody. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life, back to answer Another question that came in via email, this time from Jason in the state of Oklahoma. Jason asks, I feed a locally sourced non-GMO milled feed. If I bought two to three tons of feed in bulk super sacks and stored it in 55-gallon barrels, would it still be good at six months? Feed would be stored in barrels in my non-climate-controlled pole barn. I'm bringing six pigs onto my farm to grow out for butchering. Looking at the increasing cost of feed, I'm thinking about buying my feed up front rather than buying as I go along. Thank you, Jason. Well, uh, Jason, uh, the first thing I'll say is there are many different ways to feed pigs. Um, but, I, you know, look, buying a high-quality feed, you're, you're, you're growing six of them out, that tells me, you're trying to raise some for yourself and you're trying to turn some for some tidy profit. So this is a business and, you know, running all over the place and trying to get uh, free or discounted food for pigs can be really tedious. I think that's okay if you're doing a couple of pigs, but that's not where you're at. Um, that being said, if you can source some free stuff, obviously that helps the pocketbook in these trying times in which we find ourselves trying to grow food. Um, Will your feed still be good in six months? Probably. Will it be as nutritious for the pigs in six months? Absolutely not. Um, the rule of thumb that I've always tried to follow and learned this from studying and, and talking with the guys at my feed mill and through reading. And I, you know, I think even Joel Salton talks about this, you know, that grain, it's, it's, it's stored energy, right? And as soon as we crack it, it as soon as we mill it, it, it begins to degrade. And, and really you want to try and use feed within like 30 days. Now that can be difficult to do. And it, it's not like it's bad or, you know, anything, but it's just, it's not as nutritious your animals won't perform as well. I always try to use stuff 
hopefully 30 days. 60 days didn't really bother me, but over 60 days, you're really starting to push it. If you happen to get some moisture and these barrels can't keep that moisture out, it can start to cake together and you can actually get some mold growth in there. A little bit of that here and there is not going to mess with your pigs too bad. I mean, they're, they're pretty bulletproof, but if they get a bunch of that in their system, you're going to get scours. They're not going to gain weight. They're going to lose weight and they can get sick in a hurry. So, you know, my strategy here would be go ahead and buy the feed, prepay for the feed at the mill, go have a conversation and say, look, I need, I need to buy three tons of feed. Uh, I, I would like to prepay for it up front you keep an account of what I've got remaining and I'll, I'll come and get it, you know, every 30 days or so or every 45 days or what, whatever you can work out. That is the strategy I would shoot for. I think, um, you know, at least, at least during normal times, uh, that would be a very plausible solution to what you're talking about dealing with here. Uh, assuming it's not too much of a logistical hurdle for you to go get the feed every 30 to 60 days instead of one time. Um, you know, right now I, I, like, I don't know because everything's so goofy and prices are so high, but you're talking about a smaller order in the grand scheme of things. I mean, there, there were years where we bought like literally a hundred tons of feed. Uh, so two to three tons, you know, to a mill that's, that's still, um, you know, it's a, it's a commercial order, but it's, it's, it's still smaller. And I think if you've got a relationship with this place, that's the approach I would take is, again, just see if you can prepay for it up front and, and take it out as you need it. Um, you know, if if you can't and you really, really want to try this, I, I, I really don't suggest it. I, you know, I, I would probably buy it in two tranches and just hope that, you know, the feed doesn't skyrocket too much. If you're selling some of these pigs, maybe you have a conversation with your customers you know, I, I really never had to go through this with these kinds of crazy price fluctuations. Well, I dealt with it. Fortunately, it always happened in the winter when I was in my planning stages. Um, try to build in some cushion. Uh, don't be afraid to go back to them and say, Hey, uh, feed prices skyrocketed. I'm, you know, I'm going to have to ask for additional money. That's, that's kind of a goofy way to go about things. But, you know, if you, if you don't have a, Another alternative, you could try that. I really don't suggest it. I think worst case, I'd buy it. I'd get 90 days worth. That, that's as far as I'd be willing to go, and I'd make darn sure that I kept moisture out of those barrels. And you're really, you're just going to have to get them sealed up really, really well, as tight as you can, uh, so that you don't get any kind of moisture in, infiltration in there. And uh, you're going to want to, you're going to want to check on it and make sure that it's, you know, staying good. And uh, just try to use it up as quick as you can. Those are those are my thoughts, Jason. Um, sorry, I don't have anything better for you. Unless you can mill feed yourself, where you could just buy all the whole grains and store them and mix it. You know that's always the best solution. If you happen to have a neighbor that's that's got an old uh, old mill, uh, there used to be some old PTO driven mills that farmers would hook up to their. 70 horsepower ish tractor or bigger and they could just mill feed right there on the farm 
um, that's that's the only other thing that comes to mind. Then you can just store the whole grains, get the supplements and the minerals, weigh it all out, and mix it up yourself right there on your farm. Jason, I hope you find this helpful. Uh, for everybody else, hey, feel free to check us out, uh, grassfedlife.co. We've got a lot of resources out there on all kinds of things, like raising pigs uh, for the homestead or for profit, uh, chickens, meat chickens, cattle, business management, cash flow, marketing, um, branding, imaging, you name it, we cover it. Uh, anything from the homestead to the full-time farming operation, we've got resources for you. So be sure and check those out, grassfedlife.co, and feel free to email me a question like this if you'd like to hear it on the podcast, darby at grassfedlife.co. As always, thanks for the questions, and keep them coming. So before I, I say anything mitigating the storage life, I'm going to say straight up that Darby knows more than me. That's why I have an expert counsel, and I have ducks, not pigs. But I generally buy about 120 days, so four months' worth of feed at a shot. And part of that is because i got to go 90 miles to get it. And I save a ton of money by going 90 miles to get it. And I can't say that I've noticed any difference in, you know, with seasonal variation factored in. Growth rates, uh, egg-laying rates, happiness, activity rates, whatever, on my, my chickens and my ducks with 120 days of storage. I do think that anything stored long enough term will begin to degrade in nutritional uh, performance. But I would also put it to you this way, okay? It would be better to have 120-day-old feed than not have feed, period, right? So I, I, I would think that Pushing out at least four months would probably make sense right now, and maybe even more. And one of the things that we can do is we can go and if we have 120 days worth of feed, maybe when we're down to 30 days worth of feed, we go grab another 120. So we're maximum out like 150 days. Or in your case, you're gonna you're gonna go out to 180. So you're only gonna have to buy two months to finish. And I, I would seriously consider that right now. Because you're going to end up with a variable cost that I personally feel this year is unidirectional. There is no retraction in the price of animal feed in 2022, and I am doubtful. I'm not going on record with it won't happen. I'm saying I am doubtful there will be much of a retraction in agricultural commodity prices across the board in 2023. I think we have a long way to an unwinding, and everything that our government is doing appears to be because they want it to happen. Every wrong move you can make with our food supply, they're doing it right now. So times are tough for the farmers as it is. Right? We have soaring pricing uh, growth in, in fertilizer cost. Just for one example, we have some weather events that have occurred, but we have stupid policy by government, which is nothing new, but we have like they doubled down on dumb. And if you can make the wrong decision they have, about the only thing they haven't done is called the Air Force in to target the farm fields as uh, target practice. That's about like the only way you could be stupider is that, and, and, and at least they haven't done that yet. 
Next up, before you get my anchor segment today, Jessica Dixie Mills. And what is a Sawyer squeeze, and should you be using one for water filtration? Jessica, take it away. Hey, TS Peers, Jessica Dixie Mills here to answer a question from Eric in Michigan. The question is, is the Sawyer Squeeze or Mini still your recommended method of water treatment for backpacking? Details. My Boy Scout son and I are getting into hiking more and we'll be soon into multi-day trips so we cannot carry all the water we need. The reviews of the Sawyer filters have a few people saying they got a virus or Giardia even while using it. Did these people do something stupid like let unfiltered water drip into their clean bottle or is this a real concern? Second, do you have any thoughts on the Katahdin filters that claim they can filter more? P.S. Love your YouTube channel. Thanks for all the great videos. Well, thank you, Eric, for watching and for the question. It's been a while since I've been on the show. Uh, and also, I want to say I think it's really awesome that you and your son are going to be getting out into some multi-day trips. Uh, I wish that I had gone backpacking when I was little with my family. I think that that would have been a really cool thing. So um, I, I think that it's great that the two of y'all are going to be sharing those memories together. Um, but to answer your question, yes, the Sawyer Squeeze is definitely still my go-to water filter for the backcountry. Uh, you mentioned the mini. Now, if you are on a tight budget and you need to spend half the cost <laughs> that you would for the regular Sawyer Squeeze, then sure, um, the mini will work fine. But the mini aggravates me. Uh, the flow rate is just so much slower and I feel impatient when I want some water, uh, especially with the way that I use my Sawyer Squeeze. I like to use um, something like a one liter smart water bottle and collect my water in that, screw on the Sawyer Squeeze and then drink from it. So with the mini, I feel like I just can't get enough water. Like it's a drip flow instead of being able to actually drink and swallow some water. And the reason that I use the smart water bottles is I do not like the little pouches that Sawyer provides with the filter. One, because they tear up quickly and they'll leave you out in the field trying to duct tape it to repair it, you know, because it's sprung a leak. Um, but also, if you're trying to scoop water from a still body of water like a lake, the, the force of the water when you put the pouch into the water to submerge it, it pushes the pouch in on itself. So it's very difficult to try to scoop up water from a lake. Um, whereas the, uh, so the smart water bottles are more rigid, so you can scoop up your water just fine. And also I don't like having extra steps. So if I have to use that water bladder that they provide and then squeeze my dirty water through the filter into another receptacle, that's just an extra step when I could simply drink through the filter itself. Um, now, I carry different amounts of smart water bottles depending on what water capacity I need. And I just look ahead and say, okay, how many water sources am I going to have on this trip? Uh, what's the farthest distance between two different water sources? And how much water do I typically drink in a mile or so? And I don't go without um, fewer than two of the smart water bottles, I at least carry two liters. But again, if I think I'm going to need more, then I'll carry more. Uh, so as far as people getting Giardia or, or a virus, uh, let's start off with the virus. It, there is a, a, a definite possibility that they could get a virus while using the Sawyer Squeeze filter because 
it actually does not protect you against viruses. Um, that's not something that is typically a concern in North America. Uh, we just don't have the same issues as other countries um, as far as sewage not being sanitary, etc. And so when you're out in the backcountry in the U.S., the chances of you getting a virus from the water are very, very slim. It would have to be like your buddy is just upstream with a virus who puts diarrhea into the water uh, containing a virus, and then you scoop it up and run it through your filter and drink it, and then you get the virus. But there are other ways to get a virus um, other than water out in the backcountry. In fact, those ways might would be... Um, more uh, common or, or more of a risk, you know, than, than what you would see um, from a water source. So I find it very unlikely that this virus that people are claiming that they got um, came from the water source in the first place. Um, but the Sawyer Squeeze does protect you from the things that you typically need to worry about in North America, uh, which is bacteria, E. coli, protozoa, cysts. Um, so, I do feel like the Sawyer Squeeze is uh, a, a very important tool while in the backcountry for filtering water. Um, and I think that it protects people from those things. So um, anyway, as far as them getting Giardia from using, like while using the Sawyer filter, I, I just find a hard time believing that. I think it would be uh, more likely that they accidentally... Um, used a dirty water receptacle and added clean water to it, whether uh, they were squeezing from those bladders I was talking about into what they thought was a clean water thing. But, uh, you know, maybe before they had used it to scoop dirty water and there was still some bacteria in there. Or some people will want to mix up a drink mix like a Crystal Light or a Gatorade, and they'll use one of the bottles that they've collected dirty water in. And you know, depending on your body's system and, and ability to fight things off and also how long a droplet of water that had bacteria in it had time to let that um, bacteria multiply, uh, that certainly could be an issue. So I always keep my dirty water bottles as dirty water bottles. And then I bring a separate bottle that looks completely different, like maybe a, a 20 ounce Gatorade bottle or something like that to do all of my drink mixes in. And I make sure I put clean water. Um, also, when you use the Sawyer squeeze, you want to make sure you don't over tighten it onto your bottle if you're going to use um, the bladder or the smart water bottles I was talking about, because that can make the rubber seal in there start falling out, or it could make that part leak. So if they were using a bladder to squeeze into another bottle and say the bladder sprung a leak or that seal is leaking a little bit and allowing dirty water to backflow out of there um, into the clean bottle, then sure, they could have gotten Giardia for something like that. But you can also get Giardia from sources other than the water. So anyway, that's my take on it. Um, I think that you'll be absolutely fine with the Sawyer Squeeze in the backcountry. As far as the Katahdin Be Free question, um, and I assume you're referencing the Be Free model, that's what I would use if I was to have to replace my Sawyer Squeeze with something from Katahdin because it's a similar weight, maybe an ounce or so more. Um, but as far as your question, can they filter more? I don't know if you mean more capacity, but if you mean that, then no. Um, they... I, th I think the Be Free 3 liter that I looked at can only do like 700 and something gallons where the uh, Sawyer Squeeze can do three 
million gallons. Um, so anyway, as far as filtering more in the way, can they filter bacteria? No. From what I understand, they are rated to filter the same things that the Sawyer squeeze would. So I would go with the Sawyer squeeze, but, um, you know, certainly if, if the Katahdin looks attractive to you in one way or another, I think that it will serve you well, uh, out on y'all's trips also. Um, I am going to include for Jack to put in the show notes a link from Outdoor Gear Lab where they talk about the Sawyer Squeeze and they rate it against other filters and some from Katahdin are included in that. So if you want to give it a look over, um, I I do trust Outdoor Gear Lab. They seem to do a really good job uh, reviewing, reviewing gear and not being biased. But again, thank y'all so much for having me on the show and thank you, Eric, for the question. And y'all be sure to get your questions into Jack uh, for backpacking or YouTubing in general. All right. Happy trails. And as I said, I think uh, Dixie's doing a little little less traveling than, than she has been lately and a little bit more available and is looking forward to answering more of your questions. So if you have anything else you'd like to know about when it comes to hitting the trail, backpacking, just living out in the woods. And, I mean, you got to think about it. We can learn a lot from long-haul backpackers. Dixie's a kind of – she's a triple crown holder. Uh, hiked the three longest trails in North America from end to end, completely completing them. Uh, she's probably, that's, that probably puts her in a, I don't know the number, but I'm going to say top 1%. I bet, I bet less than 1% of serious backpackers have a triple crown. And she's hiked all over the world as well. Uh, when you live out of a backpack, you learn an awful lot about how to do more with less. So there's a ton of questions that she could answer for you. With that, I want to talk about our quote of the day. This is from Sun Tzu, who is famous uh, as the author, of course, of The Art of War. And I really recommend that everybody read The Art of War. It's not even that long. It's very profound, but it's not, it doesn't take that long to do. And I recommend reading it, oh, probably once a year. Because we are in a war. Whether we realize it or not, we're always in a war with someone. And I don't mean necessarily the kind of war we're talking about today uh, with Sun Tzu's quote. Um, I mean that there is an active war at all times for our minds to control us, to control our money, to control our property. Uh, we are at war with the state. Even when you think you're a happy member of the state, you're still at war. Uh, so the art of war helps us beyond just the, the typically thought of battlefield. But that is what Sun Tzu's talking about here. He said there is no instance of a nation benefiting from a prolonged warfare. No instance. And that was, of course, said a long, long time ago. But I'm going to try to think about any prolonged war that I can remember in my lifetime or my dad's lifetime or in my grandparents' lifetime. Prolonged war and a nation that was involved in that war benefiting from it. So is the United States better off? Because we spent 20 years in Afghanistan or Iraq. No. Are Iraq or Afghanistan better off since the United States spent 20 years there in warfare and involved them in 20 years of warfare? Uh, no. Vietnam. Is Vietnam better off because of the Vietnam War? In a weird way, yes, because it brought them self-determination, whether you want to accept that or not. But in the end, it would have been better if that war had never been fought for the people of Vietnam. And certainly the United States would have been better off without 58,000 men never coming home. I say that as I look at one of my favorite paintings that I own, and it's a painting of a man standing at the Vietnam Memorial with his hand on the wall. Um, yeah. And with a father and several uncles 
or veterans of that war. The best wars that we ever fought were the ones that we never fought. Cold War. Never fired a shot, except for the proxy wars we've already talked about. In the end, win, lose, or draw, generally, nations do better if there is conflict for it to be swift and done. And it's seldom the case that the side that won wouldn't have won anyway. And right now, in my opinion, one of the biggest travesties that's going on with the Ukraine-Russia war And you can think whatever you want about Ukraine. You can think whatever you want about Russia is prolonging it. Prolonging it. I, I think that the end of this war is predetermined, and the media is already moving to where they can say Putin lost. Right? I, I listened to the media this week kind of capitulate to the fact that, that Putin's probably going to shore up his holdings in eastern Ukraine and say he's done. And then claim that's a victory because he expanded his territory. And this is what the talking head said. How do we stop him from doing that? Not how do we stop him from gaining this territory. How do we stop him from claiming that's a victory? And I, I, I said it out loud instantly. Well, if you can't kick him out of there, then you can't. It is a victory. It's pretty much what Russia said they wanted to do. And that's not something I want to happen. It's something that I see that's going to happen. That, that's unless we're dumb enough, like Dr. Paul said, and we drag ourselves into World War III with this. That's what. And when this whole thing started, and I said the United States caused this to happen, I said the best case scenario that you get out with is that Putin takes Luhansk and Donetsk, right? That, that that's the best case scenario you get now. Looks like that's what's going to happen. And this and, and it would have. Here's my thing. Bad or good. It already would have if we stayed out of it. And further, had we not instigated it, if we didn't go into Ukraine in 2014 and overturn an election and create the color revolution, if we didn't continuously interfere, if we didn't screw around with dragging the Ukraine into the EU and NATO, if we didn't constantly expand NATO right up to Russia's border, if we didn't keep doing this, if we didn't keep provoking Russia, it also would not have happened. This is not good for Russia, this war. A prolonged war is not good for either nation involved. It isn't. And I think Russia would have preferred not to do this. He's crazy. Have you ever noticed that too? Every single leader of every single country that the United States has a war or a proxy war with is crazy. They're all crazy. Every one of them. What are the odds? He's psychotic. He's crazy. Now, I think all, all politicians, especially upper-level politicians, are sociopaths. I think they all are. So they all technically have a mental illness. But this, he's crazy. How many times are you going to be led to war because somebody's crazy? Saddam Hussein, crazy. Right? Crazy. They're all crazy. Mentally unstable. Crazy. Prolonging war. And then, I'll tell you what also never happens. Sun Tzu could have never envisioned this. Because at the time that Sun Tzu was around, we still had the governor of governments. The governor of governments at the time was gold. That, that, that nations were unable to simply print money. And therefore, warfare was inherently unsustainable as a thing. 
The only sustainable form of warfare was a little war far away, like crusades and things like that, because the people back home were insulated from them, and if you had enough victories, you brought gold home. But this idea that you can just keep churning out more and more weaponry on demand with no real cost to anybody, that's a modern invention. That's a modern invention, and we have the ability to prolong warfare like has never been the case in history. And Sun Tzu could not have foreseen that, because Sun Tzu could not have seen a way in which there could be so perfect a manipulation of an economy that money could be printed at will ad nauseum forever, or at least until the cows come home and the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. And so there's something that we're often promised when a war ends. We were promised this with different words because God helped them if they used the same words that they failed to deliver on. But in many ways, they, they talked about this as Afghanistan ended, as, as poorly as that was executed. And, and, and our slow disappearing withdrawal from Iraq that really kind of never was definitively defined as being done at this point. It just kind of was. Kind of walked away from it like we, we broke it and then we kind of just sauntered away from it and went, uh, whoops. Sorry about killing half a million of your citizens. Whoops, sorry. Okay? Yeah. Peace dividend. Peace dividend. Those of you that are old enough to remember the end of Vietnam, remember we were promised a peace dividend. That all this money that we were spending in Vietnam, when we brought all the men home, we stopped fighting this war. Peace with honor. That we would have this money that we had been wasting in this foreign land that we could fix all our problems at home. Now, this is the mid-70s. How'd that work out? Anybody out there get any peace dividend? Has any peace dividend come from Afghanistan and Iraq? Are we better off now? At least in the fact that we could have took the trillions of dollars we were pouring into a war zone and poured it into our own streets, our own bridges, our own people, our own home. Where's the peace dividend? There isn't one, there will never be one. Because in the words of Sun Tzu, there is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. War, if it is to be fought, needs to be quick and decisive. And if it cannot be, then you don't fight it. There's a lot of things you learn in the art of war. Like never fighting a battle unless victory is assured before the battle starts. Picking your battles. You've heard that term, pick your battles. It comes right from that. That's where it comes from. It's not just something that a wiser, older woman tells a younger woman who's getting in a fight with her husband about something stupid in a marriage. Pick your battles. Choose the battle, the time, the place, the scenario, and only act when victory is assured. Our government is not as incompetent as I make it out to be, and yet it has picked the wrong battle, the wrong time, the wrong place, the wrong way, Every single time since since World War II ended. World War II was the last time that we went to war with a clear objective, executed it as quickly as was reasonably possible under the scenario, and got the job done. It's the last time. Don't give me Gulf War One. That was a dadgone mess, and it made Gulf War Two. World War Two. Now, we caused it, but at least we ended it relatively quickly. We got into a war in, in a theater we didn't even need to be involved in as well, but at least we ended it quickly. 
There is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. So what is the worst thing you can do as a third party when two nations are at war? Prolong the war. Why would we do something that we know doesn't work? Why would we do something that has a thousand-year track record or more of being proven correct? Because maybe we want the chaos. Because maybe we want the failure. Because maybe we want the distraction. Oh, and by the way, have you noticed the distinct fall-off in even discussing the very important Ukraine-Russian war to the American people that we need to send billions of dollars in blood and treasure and provoke World War III? All of a sudden, it just doesn't seem that important anymore, does it? And it seems like there's a new headline that we won't get in today. But there's a new outrage du jour. There's a new war right here in the homeland between political tribes, almost like that's the plan. There's no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare, but there's a very good track record of the powerful and the elite and the war hawks who never bleed in battle benefiting extensively from prolonged warfare. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the same one as yesterday, because at least this morning, anyway, it was still on sale. In fact, it went down in price. It's not cheap, but, I mean, it is cheap, but it's not cheap, because it's like anything that's like 700, 800 bucks. I don't know that I'd call it cheap, but for what it is, it's cheap. If you didn't hear yesterday's show or find out about this yesterday, the Briggs & Stratton 4500-watt um, smart series inverter generator is on sale and it is on sale for just to, to me this is like a, a ridiculously low price $797 it was like $835 yesterday and it dropped another like 40 bucks okay guys have you noticed we're in the middle of a supply chain crunch shortage that's shipped to your door this thing's quiet it's dependable it's easy to start it runs it's Sean Mills approved. Ah, uh, man, if you don't have a solid large generator, it doesn't get much better than this. And then I'll, I'll add, if you do have one, two is one, one is none. And if I didn't already have my two is one, one is none, three is for me filled with generators, I'd buy one of these. I am actually... Oh, with that big dip in Bitcoin, it's hard to go out and spend money on something you don't really need, and you already have, you know, you already have your kind of everything backed up and 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 protected and doubled down on. But man, that is a sweet deal. This is a great generator. Um, it's on sale sale right now at Home Depot for twelve hundred bucks, or you can get it shipped to your door from Amazon for seven hundred ninety seven dollars. If you don't have a good generator, get this one. Get it today. With that, we've wrapped things up. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. I will be back tomorrow. I don't know what we'll be doing tomorrow. If it'll be out back with Jack or an interview with Nick Ferguson, we'll see what next gets here in a couple hours. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. 
show you a better way.